The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, uh, you know, the most painted image in all of Western culture is surely uh, Jesus on the cross. And, and every image of its kind is unique. Uh, and, and this same event has been interpreted in all kinds of ways in history. Sometimes the artist portrays the cross artistically. Sometimes the crucifixion is, is portrayed accurately or, or sometimes simply. Sometimes it is just terribly distorted. But sometimes it's portrayed beautifully. And, and you might ask, why are there so many different interpretations of this one event? And I think it's because a lot of us know that the cross of Jesus changed everything. Like it's at the center of our faith, it's the heart of our gospel. But another and a deeper reason that the cross matters is because it's where we see what God is like. The cross shows us who God is. Um, there's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who said that the death of Jesus on the cross is the center of all Christian theology. When the, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God, and God is like this. Now, we've, uh, we've been in this series called The Creed, What and How the Church Believes. Uh, each week, we're talking about not just what is important for Christians to believe, but how we hold these things together and how we treat one another uh, in light of potential disagreements. Last time we looked, last time we were working through this study, we talked about the Holy Spirit. We said we, the, the part of the creed where we believe in the Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. Today, this is our second last study in the series, and what we're asking is, what does it mean to believe in the forgiveness of sins? What do we mean by the forgiveness of sins? Uh, as we go, uh, as always, you're free to text in your questions at the number that's on your screen there. Um, but th the situation is kind of this. A couple of weeks ago, we canceled worship, uh, and, and so we weren't able to share this message. And the leadership team talked, and we decided that this message is just, it's just too important for us to skip. And so I've made some changes, uh, and, and, and I want you to think of this as an early Christmas gift. Okay, Today, it's like Easter meets Christmas. And if this works, if this message really connects, what I think is going to happen is that you're going to go home with an answer to the question, what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? And in some ways, this is basic stuff. This is Christianity 101. On the other hand, this can get tricky because we don't all mean the same thing when we talk about sins. We don't mean the same things when, when we're talking about sin. I mean, like, why a cross? Why was a cross necessary? Like, what is the problem of sin for which the cross is God's solution? That's the question. And, and in the Bible, um, sin is many problems. It's not just one thing. It's many things. Like, is sin an insult to God? Yes, it is. Is sin only an insult to God? No. And is it mainly an insult to God? No, I don't think so. So so what is sin then? Well, sin is like a sickness that we all carry that leads to death. Sin is a, a pollution that makes us unclean and dangerous to others. 
in other parts of the Bible, sin is idolatry. Like it's it's loving and worshiping anything in God's place. In some parts of Scripture, sin is like a, it's adultery. It's like cheating on a spouse, or sin is a failure to live up to our potential. Like as as image bearers, we fail to live as image bearers. In some parts of Scripture, sin blinds us and makes us lost and far from home. In, in, in other parts of Scripture, sin is like a rebellion against a holy God. And, and in others, sin is a, a curse that broke the world. Sin is a curse that broke the world. Or in other places, sin is a wedge that puts hostility between the nations and, and the genders. And, and so sin has all these meanings in the Bible. And, and it has other meanings in the Bible. And, and so it's not just one thing. Sin has many meanings in the Bible, and the cross is how God dealt with all of those problems. And this is important to say, because if we don't say this up front, we might go into this study of the cross with a view of God that is very skewed or very distorted. And if your view of God is, is skewed, that affects everything. Like, that affects how we live in all kinds of ways. It affects our worship. It affects our sense of mission, and it affects our relationships with one another. And your view of God might be skewed, and you don't even realize it. And that's what today is for. Today is for unburdening ourselves from dangerous, distorted views of the God who we worship. And I really believe that is the best way that I can serve you this Christmas. Now, to begin, what we mean by forgiveness of sins is this. It comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a promise. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness is God's promise. But how does the cross achieve that? Like, what is it that happened on the cross that allows us to say now that we're one with Christ, that we've been cleansed from all uh, unrighteousness? Now, today what I want to do is share some pictures. I want to share five pictures of what happened on the cross, and uh, the one picture that I think ties them all together, and then we're going to close with some questions that I think we should take home. So, how did Jesus win our forgiveness of sins? at the cross. The first picture is this. It's the picture of ransom. In ransom, the prisoners are released. This was taught by a majority of the early church fathers. So like Mark, Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways uh, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So here, the church made sense of these verses by saying that uh, that by our sin, the human race kind of, like we sold ourselves uh, into slavery, into bondage to the devil, and, and sin made us his prisoners, but Jesus' life and his, his blood is a ransom. And so on the cross, the devil traded all of us for the life of Jesus, and, and he releases us. And that's the ransom picture. Another picture of the cross is one that we can call uh, restoration. 
restoration. This is where the cross makes all things new. The cross makes all things new. The early church taught uh, this view kind of in parallel with the ransom view. And in this view of restoration, Jesus uh, is this, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. So for example, Romans chapter 5, verses 18-19. Paul says that uh, as through one trespass there's condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there's justification leading to life for everyone. Just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the, one, the many will be made righteous. And in Colossians he expresses a similar idea. Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in this view, Jesus is a new Adam. And the cross is where Jesus undid the, the curse. Like Jesus undoes everything that Adam did wrong. So whereas Adam broke the world by his disobedience, Jesus obeys all the way to the cross and we are forgiven because of Jesus' obedience. Do you see that? So through, through Jesus, God is restoring the world. He's rolling back the curse. He's reconciling all things to himself. And it's this huge, epic, cosmic, inclusive picture uh, of what God is doing in the atonement. And that's a, this is a really important picture. There's another picture uh, of, of the cross, though, that we need to understand. And it's, it's the Christus Victor view. The Christus Victor view. On this, uh, in, in this view, um, it's a picture of how on the cross our enemy was defeated. Our enemy was defeated. And for the first 12 centuries of the church, Christians understood this picture as a really important picture of what happened on the cross. They understood the cross as a bit of a, a battlefield or a wrestling ring, okay? So in Colossians chapter 2, for example, Paul says uh, in verses 13 to 15, When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Uh, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shares in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So in this view, uh, before the cross, we couldn't be forgiven because Satan was in charge. He sort of ruled us. And on the cross, Jesus defeated him, and, this, and so Satan was forced to let us go. So now that Satan and sin and death have no power over us, God is free uh, to forgive us and to welcome us back when we trust him. And that's one of the things that happened on the cross in this Christus Victor view. Uh, the fourth view, the fourth picture, the fourth picture is the satisfaction view. This is where the cross is justice being done. So way back in the 12th century, uh, a bishop named Anselm of Canterbury, he was, uh, he was an English bishop. He, he served King William the Conqueror, and, and he saw the cross through the lens of, of, a, of a king, a majestic royal king, relating to his peasants. 
And sin, in this view, sin is a dishonor. The dignity of the king is at stake in how he deals with the sin of his peasants. Uh, so, so what is the king to do? Well, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness. Let me say that again. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. And then this from Hebrews chapter 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in this picture of the cross, this, this view, uh, emphasizes that God has been insulted by the sin of his people. Sin is treason, okay? And God isn't free to just forgive the peasants because they're beneath him. And so the cross uh, is enough to show how God feels about sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus is punished uh, and God is vindicated and, and now he's free to forgive everybody who trusts him because a righteous sacrifice has been put to death. So now God is free to forgive everybody who trusts in him. So that's this, that's, that is the satisfaction view. Uh, the, the fifth view that I think is quite important is, is um, the loving example picture. Jesus as our loving example. On the, here on the cross, love transforms us. A glimpse of, of God's love transforms us. So, so in response to maybe the satisfaction view, there were some Christians who said, no, 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 that's, um, that, we don't like how that portrays God. And so, no, the cross is actually a revelation of God as pure love. So they, they, and they would get this, from, for example, from Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have been declared righteous by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath? 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in this picture, uh, we see the cr that on the cross, God is revealed as self-giving, all-forgiving love. And, and he overcomes our sin problem by showing that he is he's better, he's more loving, and, and his example changes us into more loving people. So as we look at Jesus, as we see him on the cross, love incarnate, and, and what he suffered for us, that should move us to treat one another with love and, and, and to take that love out into the world. And that's the, that is the loving example picture. Now there's one more picture that I think is important and I say, I've saved it to last because I actually think that this is the one that makes sense 
uh, of all the others. It's the substitution view. The substitution view. This is where on the cross, Jesus dies our death. He dies our death. Now in all of these pictures, what Christians are doing is asking, what was God doing on the cross? What happened on the cross? Where was he? And, and, and the most fundamental answer to that question, I think, is substitution. That on the cross, God is there. He is there on the cross, dying in our place. And we see this in a number of places. In, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says uh, in verse 19, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Uh, he made the one who didn't know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Like he became a curse for us. That's a, that's a big deal. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, the prophet says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in this picture, sin is a, uh, sin is a problem between us and God, but it's also a problem between us and each other, and us and the earth. Sin in this view is, is so great like a problem that it's like a, it's a thing. It's a curse. It's a fire. It's a, it's a storm. It's a, it's a, a problem that, can, that, that you can touch and, and feel and, and needs to be dealt with. And the cross is where a perfect substitute came and take our, took our place and he took that sin and he took that, that, that thing on himself. He carried it on the cross. And so one of the ways that you might think of the substitution view is like this. You might think of sin as an oil spill. This is a picture of an oil spill where the oil has seeped into the ocean and it covers everything. And, and the more that the creatures who are covered in this oil, the more that they struggle against it, like these penguins and these, these pelicans and stuff the, and these otters, and the more that they struggle against it, the more that it traps them because it covers them and seeps into every little nook and cranny of their body and, and it'll kill them. It'll kill everything unless someone comes along to clean it and to absorb it. So another, so that's, one, that's a picture of, of substitution. Something, something has to come along and absorb our sin. Or another picture that I thought of is actually this. It comes from the Harry Potter stories, the Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince uh, the movie in particular, I haven't, I haven't read the book. Um, but there's a scene in the movie where Harry Potter and Professor Dumbledore, they need this, they need to find this priceless object that uh, can save everybody. It's a, it turns out to be a, a horcrux, but um, this object is at the, the bottom of a fountain and, and, and this, the fountain is filled with poison. So the object that they need, this necklace, it's at the bottom of a fountain that's filled with poison, and it's it's Harry's job, it's Harry's mission, to to uh, to get the necklace. And the only way to do that is by drinking the poison. 
right? He has to drink the poison in order to retrieve this precious uh, object. Except Professor Dumbledore knows that if Harry drinks it, he'll die, right? So, so what are they going to do? Well, well, they decide that Dumbledore is going to drink the potion for him. Instead of Harry, it's going to be Dumbledore who drinks the potion. He says, as the, season, as the scene uh, unfolds, Dumbledore says, Harry, it has to be drunk. All of it has to be drunk. This potion, it might paralyze me. It might, me for, make, sorry, it might make me forget why I'm here. It might cause me so much pain that I beg for relief. But you are not to indulge these requests, Harry. It's your job, Harry, to make sure I keep drinking this potion, even if you have to force it down my throat. Understood? And Harry asks, naturally, But sir, why can't I drink it? And Dumbledore says, Because I'm much older, I'm much cleverer, and I am much less valuable. And so you understand, in this scene, which is, this is awesome, Dumbledore steps in as a substitute for Harry and for his friends, and he drinks the poison for them. He absorbs the effects of it so that they don't have to. And you understand that in the same way, Jesus is our substitute, because he is far older, right? He's ancient. He is far cleverer, because he knows everything. And for our sakes, Jesus became much less valuable. He, he takes our place on the cross. He drinks the cup of wrath. He absorbs the curse. And he hands us the prize, which is forgiveness of sin. And you've got to know that each one of these atonement views is true and is important. And it reveals an aspect of God. Maybe his, his justice or his, his love or his mercy. And, and substitution seems to be the picture that ties the rest of them together. Substitution isn't just one of many views of the cross. Substitution in Scripture seems to be the lens by which we see and understand and interpret the cross itself. Substitution is the lens by which we make sense of the cross. Now, how can I say that? Am I contradicting myself? I'm not. I'm not. Substitution is important because Whatever you believe happened on the cross, that reveals who you understand God to be. Whatever you believe happened on the cross, that's your understanding of what God is like. Right? His reaction to sin, his response to the sin problem shows what you think God is like. And any one of these views, if you took it in isolation, if you take any one of these views in particular, uh, it's, it will fill your head with all kinds of terrible, unbalanced ideas. But substitution is important because it guards us from that. Like, suppose you, you thought the cross is mainly, or it's only, where God defends his reputation, like in the satisfaction view. If that's your main understanding of the cross, then you might believe deep down that God can't stand you, and that the cross is where Jesus died not to save you from sin, but to save you from God. And listen, if that's all you know, you need to stop. You need to stop and reflect on that because, my friend, that is distorted. It's distorted, and I bet that it shows up. I bet it shows up in the way you live. Like, how's your worship life? How's your time alone with God? How's your evangelism going? 
Like what's going to happen to our kids if they learn either on purpose or accidentally that the good news is that God doesn't actually hate them as much as he used to? Do you think that's what the good news is? And so this Christmas, I'm inviting you, look at the cross. See that Jesus is there as a substitute. Let it hit you. God refused to leave us as we were. He hated what sin has done to us and to our, his relationship with us. And he decided to deal with it himself. Jesus isn't some victim in the wrong place at the wrong time being executed and punished in order to make an example. Jesus chose this. Jesus stepped in. That is God on the cross. Okay, and that's so important. On the other hand, if you think that we're all uh, like victims, uh, and, and you know, if we're all victims of sin, and if, if we could only just see God's love, then, then you know, like if, if, if the cross is just to you mainly like the second chance that we all need, then you probably underestimate how serious our sin problem is. You probably underestimate how serious sin is, and you might overestimate our ability to make good choices and live like Jesus on our own, apart from God's help. And if that's what you think, like if that's what the cross is about to you, you need to stop. You need to reflect for a minute and, a and ask yourself, like, if that's all the cross is about, then, then why isn't everybody a follower of Jesus? Like, if we're all just victims, if all we needed was a, was a sort of a reminder of, of, how, of how much potential we, are, we, we have, then, then why are we all still so tempted by sin? Why is the world, why is our city still so broken? Listen, I'm inviting you, look at the cross and see Jesus there in your place. Jesus there dying in your place. And let that sink in. Let it hit you. Let that penetrate all the way down. That that is what sin's consequences did to a perfect, sinless God-man. And if that's what sin did to the Son of God, who could barely handle it on his own, if that's what it did to Jesus, what would have happened to you? on the cross. If that were you, what would have happened to you? And so, what, man, what a picture of mercy. What a picture of grace. What a picture of love. What an amazing solution for that sin problem. What a Savior we have. Do you believe that? And, and so in some ways, it's fair to say that Jesus died to rescue us from our terrible ideas about God. When we say, like, we, like as we say in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are declaring that the cross did many, many things, not just one thing. The cross did, it accomplished many things and it changed everything. And what ties all of these truths together is that Jesus is our substitute. And so I agree with John Stott who said, that no that he, he, he said uh, substitution is not a theory of atonement. It's not a theory of atonement, no, nor is it even an additional image to take its place as an option alongside uh, other explanations of the cross. 
Substitution is rather the essence of each image and the heart of the atonement itself. The better that people understand the glory of the divine substitution, the easier it'll be for them to trust in the substitute. Let me say that again. The better people understand the glory of the divine substitution, the easier it'll be for them to trust in the substitute. And so, when you consider what happened on the cross, let me just ask you a few questions here. When you consider what happened on the cross, first of all, does it inspire you to worship and to obey God or to hide from Him? Like maybe the cross makes you only feel guilty. Maybe not. Um, but, but may I suggest that if the cross makes you feel worse, if it makes you feel more guilty instead of less, you probably don't yet believe that the cross was enough. Like you probably don't yet believe in the forgiveness of sins. You might still be trying to deserve what Jesus did there. And I hope that we see the cross as a picture of how free and how new and how transformed we are in Jesus. Second question, uh, when you reflect on what happened on the cross, are you, are you more inspired to talk to others about God or are you more inclined to, to change the subject? You know, are, are you more likely to talk to others about God or, or, or are you more likely to change the subject? You know, there are lots of reasons that I can appreciate why a person might feel intimidated talking to their friends and family and, and neighbors and stuff about Jesus. I totally get that. Um, not all of those reasons mean that we are ashamed of the gospel. That's not how it works. There is such a thing as the offense of the cross. I totally get that. On the other hand, friends, it is possible to be so mistaken, so unbalanced in our understanding of the cross. It is possible to be so unbalanced that the, that the God that we believe in isn't one that we want to talk to others about. And so, so maybe if we did, maybe if we shared our faith with them, maybe they would go, uh, wait a second, that actually sounds like, that sounds pretty terrible. That sounds like an abusive, angry father. Why, why would I want to worship that? Why would, what are you doing inviting me into a relationship with a father like that? Like, why would I want to know a God and, and worship a God like that? And, and just so you know, friends, like if talking to others about God, if that scares you to death, it may be that your view of the cross is unbalanced. And so may I suggest that you look to the cross again and see it as the ultimate place where God shows us what He's like. Yes, He shows us His justice. He also shows us His grace and His love and mercy and kindness and patience. Third question. As you reflect on what happens on the cross, does it make you a more gracious, forgiving person or less? You know, if the cross is what it took to forgive our sin against God, we can't possibly expect more than that from somebody who sins against us. I mean, you know that, right? Like if, if the cost of forgiving our sin against God was to put Jesus on the cross and all of his suffering there, if that was the price of our uh, forgiveness by God, then when somebody sins against you, you're going to forgive them. Of course you are. You're going to show them grace. Of, of course you will. And, and of course, uh, you can't possibly look at your own weakness and you can't look at your own failures uh, and your own uh, shortcomings 
and condemn yourself as hopeless. Not when God looks at you and he says that you are forgiven, you are righteous, you are new, you are loved, you belong to me, God says. So, so may I suggest that the creed says the forgiveness of sins is real. Forgiveness of, God, uh, forgiveness of sins comes to us from God. But are we going to extend that to others too? Will we extend it to ourselves? Another question I think is important is, which of these pictures, which of these word pictures of the cross stands out to us as, as new and as important and beautiful and as good news? I invite you just to review the pictures that we've talked about today. Which of these word pictures are new and, and good news to you? And then last question, what are some of the untrue or unbalanced pictures or unbalanced ideas that you've had about God? What are some of the distorted ideas that you have about God that just need to be put down once and for all? Can I just, friends, can I just encourage you to review the passages that we've been looking at today? Because, you know, they all have something in common. In the minds of the writer, in the, in the minds of the people who put, you know, pen to paper and recorded these uh, important truths for us, the cross is good news. It's not bad news. The cross is good news. What happened on the cross there, it, it is the best news in the world. And every single thing that needed to happen so that we can know God and enjoy the forgiveness of sins, Jesus has already done it. It's already been achieved. And so this week I'm going to invite you to stand with me just as we've been doing, doing uh, every week in this uh, series so far. I'm going to invite you to stand and we'll say the creed together and then we'll pray. Would you stand? Thank you for listening.